Welcome to Disciple City Church Podcast. My name is Jerry Wagner, founder and lead pastor of Disciple City Church in Dallas, Texas. Thank you so much for tuning in to our podcast. Our desire is to unleash healthy disciple makers in West Dallas to reach the world. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can listen to new messages each week. Thank you and have a God-filled day. When I look at that video and I see my siblings from around the world being persecuted, I cannot help but to think about the statistics that were laid out. One in eight Christians in the global church are persecuted because they follow Jesus. They are rejected from their villages in India. I think the Phillips can say something about that. They are intimidated in China. They are burnt, raided, killed in Nigeria. In fact, from the video it says, there is an estimate of 340 million Christians around the world who are being discriminated against or being persecuted because they have made the proclamation that Jesus is Lord. And yet, in the midst of all of that persecution, the church is growing. Around the world, disciples are making disciples. The church is united. And lastly, they are experiencing a revival. And I love what the one pastor said. He said, we do not pray that God will take away the hardship but that God should give us the grace to be able to stand. What do we call that? Boldness. He's praying that God would give him the boldness, the strength, the foundation to stand strong. Now, when I hear that video and when I look at that video, I must confess I sympathize with them, but I do not empathize. I am sad of what I see and I am sad at what I hear, but it does not cut deep in my heart. Why? It is because I understand, like most Christians in the United States understand, that we do not have a persecution issue, we have a comfort issue, right? Like we are not afraid that we will experience physical harm to our body, but we are afraid that our comforts will be taken away. God forbid that I can't go into a church building. God forbid I can't wear, I have to wear a mask. Like all of a sudden, it's not about physical persecution. For us, it is about our comforts being taken away. What the global church considers persecution physically, the Western church considers persecution based on their comfort. What am I going to lose? In fact, I think this is a bold statement right here. We do not pray for boldness in the United States. We pray for relief. (laughs) 
We pray that God will relieve these uncomfortable circumstances that we are going through. Because God forbid that I have to be bold for Jesus and live in these conditions. That I have to be bold for Jesus in the midst of this pandemic. That I have to be bold for Jesus when things in my life are just rocky. We don't pray for boldness. If we're honest with ourselves, we pray for relief. In fact, most of us are are, are waiting to the world normalize itself so then we can get back to making disciples. These people are not praying so that they may con- that God that they may continue to experience persecution. What they are praying is, do not allow persecution from stopping me from being obedient to Jesus. And for us, it's quite the opposite. So I wanted to put this to the test. And so I asked my daughter as we were going to her uh, weekly doctor appointment. I said, "Sweetie." Um, do you desire to be bold for Jesus? And she said, yes, Dad, I, I, I do desire. In fact, I pray that God will make me more bold on my swim team, make me more bold in the um, um, people that he has entrusted me with. And so I said, well, sweetie, what do you think is preventing you from being bold for Jesus? And this is what she said. She says, when I think about what is, I'm going to say to a person, And I begin to organize my thoughts in my head of the answer that I am going to give them. I become afraid because they might ask me a question that I don't know the answer to, which prevents me from speaking at all. And so I looked at her. I said, well, sweetie, it doesn't sound like you have a boldness issue. It sounds like you have a control issue. That you are more concerned with the details of God's plan than the dependency upon God's spirit. Yeah, like you talk to your daughter like, yes, I'm making disciples at the work now. Tamara and I are making disciples. We ain't playing around right here. And if I'm honest with myself and if you're honest with yourself, what my daughter did is the very thing that we do. That when boldness and comfort meet one another, we begin to go right to risk management mode, right? We begin to identify the potential risk. We will begin to analyze the potential problems. And then we take precautionary steps to reduce or curb the risk of our comfort. In other words, we make a comfort-centered decision and not a crisis centered decision. We, we make decisions that will not affect our comfort, not decisions that will cause us to reflect the person of Jesus. One of the silent killers of the Western church One of the things that is killing the Western church from making disciples, from experiencing a revival in every area of life, or preventing the church to be unified across cultural, social, and economic background is simply our desire for comfort. 
In fact, when I was going through this, there's a quote that I kept seeing on the internet and it kept saying, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. But when I began to trace the source of this, this quote, we are willing to get comfortable with being uncomfortable with success. We are willing to get comfortable with being uncomfortable for our legacy or providing for our children or building our brand or our business. But when it comes to Jesus, we are comfortable with being comfortable. So today, I want to answer the question, how do we boldly proclaim Jesus when we are uncomfortable? Uh, like, how do we stand up? How, how do we stand out? How do we, despite what's going on in our life, still center our life around an obedience to what the Spirit is leading us to? In order to answer this question, I think Acts chapter 4 has that, uh, the truth of this question. And so this is how I want to set up the text today. I want to talk about the what, the why, and the how. All right? What is the risk of boldly proclaiming Jesus? Why should we boldly proclaim Jesus? And how do we boldly proclaim Jesus when things are uncomfortable? The what, the why. The how. So let's begin with the what. What is the risk of boldly proclaiming Jesus? Well, when you look at Acts chapter 4, I think you see four things that you can extract as the risk. And that is there will be public conflict. There will be interrogation. There will be silencing or censoring. And then there will be civil punishment. The moment you decide to boldly proclaim Jesus, you are going to be publicly confronted by the world. And so when we look at verses one through two, uh, the text is, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Notice what the text says. It says, as they were speaking. They did not wait to interrupt them. As they were speaking to the people, it says that the Jewish authorities publicly interrupted them. And it's funny because they didn't just send one person. They sent three groups of people, three Jewish um, authorities to confront Peter and John. And, and if you want just a, a biblical lesson real quick, the priest uh, is responsible for what goes on inside the temple, like the sacrifice. But the captain of the temple, he is responsible for the conduct that goes inside and outside of the temple. And then there is the Sadducees, who is known for what they don't believe as opposed to what they do believe. And they do not believe in the resurrection. And so as these people begin to confront them, the text says that they were greatly annoyed 
You know that you are being bold for Jesus when people are agitated. (laughs) You know that you are being bold for Jesus when people are strongly irked or vexed in their spirit. They were so mad that they were willing to probably in some cases kill them. But it had burdened them that these John and, and Peter would be proclaiming this Jesus to the crowd right outside the temple. And the question is, why? Why were they so upset? And the funny thing is, they are not upset because they healed a man who was crippled. The text says the reason why they are upset is because they are proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> Hold on. There was a crippled man laying by the gate for years who was just healed. But you bypass that and you are mad that they are proclaiming this Jesus. To proclaim something means that you are willing to publicly declare something that you deem that is important. So what they are doing is they are not just out there proclaiming faith claims. They are making faith absolutes. That Jesus is Messiah. Watch this. People are not going to publicly confront you for passing out meals. They're not going to publicly confront you for sheltering the homeless or creating a safe space for everybody or meeting the needs of the poor. But the moment you tell these same people that you are serving, that Jesus is the only Messiah, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin, public scrutiny will follow. See, that's why, that's why we hide behind our good deeds so that we never have to proclaim our good Savior. That's why they're willing to give more money to those things that uh, bring forth relief than to the God who is going to change one's life forever. Put it to the test. Go on your social media And post Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declare the Lord. Plan for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Put that on your social media. You'll get all type of likes. You'll get people saying, I needed this. You'll get people saying, man, this is just what God ordered. And some of it's genuine. But you'll know if it's genuine if you post John 14, 6 and says, for Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And all of a sudden, brothers like Steve Harvey be like, nope, I don't believe that. Because people are not concerned by what you do. They actually are concerned by whose name you do it under. So one of the risks that you have to understand that if you're going to do this, if you're going to lean into boldly proclaiming Jesus, you will be confronted publicly. And here's the second risk. You will be interrogated. You will be questioned. The moment you are bold for Jesus, people will begin to question your faith. 
They will begin to, to question your intellect. They will begin to question your theology. They will begin to question whether you are evolving with the culture and society. Look at verses 5 through 7 in chapter 4. It says, on the next day, their rulers and their elders and their scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias and the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Notice something. All of a sudden, these religious authority are being beginning to question the authority of these apostles. And it's funny because when people start to question your intellect, that you are following a blind faith, they like to use word that, words like you're not being intellectually honest. You're not being intellectually responsible. Uh, not only will they question your intellect, but then your theology. Right? They will begin to question how can you have such an antiquated theology? In fact, one of my daughters was faced with this reality I believe in the Bible. But the Bible should not trump how society is evolving. These are 15-year-old and 16-year-old and, and, and children being faced that your Bible has to evolve with the culture. In other words, a broad proclamation will provoke scrutiny from other people when you stand out. There was a story uh, about two young men uh, one of the young men who professed to be a follower of Jesus and the other uh, young man said to him, he said, listen, man, when I watch your life, man, you, 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 you proclaim Jesus, you, you, you wear Jesus shirts, like you, like, but it's all private. He says, but I, I never see it on social media, right? I, I never see it like out there. And the young man said to him, well, the reason why I don't put it on social media is because I don't want to be trolled. I don't want to be trolled. In other words, he is more afraid and more concerned with being trolled for Christ than being true to Christ. Like oftentimes we are more concerned with being trolled by people on social media than we are concerned with being true with the gospel that saved us. Here's what I've noticed. You know what's the hardest thing about the interrogation? It's not the questioning. People are not overwhelmed by the questions that come. They are more overwhelmed by the labels that come along with it. See, our problem is that we don't want to be labeled as that Christian. We don't want to be labeled as that Jesus fanatic. We don't want to be labeled as self-righteous or intolerant or hypocritical or homophobic or judgmental. 
We do not want to be labeled by those things, which oftentimes nullify our boldness. And notice something. People call you these things not based on what you did, not based on a character flaw. They call you these things when you accurately proclaim the biblical picture of Jesus. <laughs> right? Like, you can do all type of bad things and good things, man, and they're going to still say you got a good heart until you boldly proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And can somebody help me with this? How is it that we don't mind political labels, but we are against religious labels? We don't mind being called conservative or liberal or progressive. But the moment when somebody says, oh, man, that's one of those Bible thumpers, we have a problem with that. Oh, that's one of those religious folks. No, no, no. We're not religious. We have relationship. As if there's no religious component to the Christian faith. If you're going to stand out and be bold for Jesus, you got to know you're going to be interrogated. You're going to be scrutinized. And here's the third part. They're going to try to silence you. To censor you. Go back to verses 13 through 21. Verse 18, it says, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. All right? They said, they said we do not want you to speak or teach the name of of Jesus. Now, once again, look at the reaction of these Jewish authorities, right? Uh, some refer to them as the Sanhedrin Council because it's the same council that put Jesus on trial. Just go back to the book of Luke, right? Notice why they are trying to censor them. In verse 13, they see a lame man is healed, right? This observation caused them to conclude that this is a notable sign that was performed and that there are eyewitnesses in Jerusalem who can testify to this and there is something that we cannot deny. That's what they observed. Secondly, in verse 14, they had nothing to say in opposition. And then third, in verse 13, they were astonished. Now let me get this straight. Let me see if I can walk you through this passage. They were not astonished by the lame man being healed, but rather untrained, uneducated, non-seminarians who speak boldly about Jesus. That's, that's why they're upset. And that's a dig against us because those who think, oh man, I need a degree to tell people about Jesus. Not based on this. Oh, man, I need to go to seminary. Not based on this. They are more astonished at what they are proclaiming and not what they did. And it's funny because they look at them, and in verse 13, he says, 
and we was astonished at how bold, how bold Peter and John was. Well, what were they bold about? What, like, what were they speaking that caused them to be so astonished? Well, if you go back to verses 8 to 12, I'm going to summarize it for you. These are the several things that they said about Jesus. This is what made them bold. Jesus is the Messiah. He was wrongly accused and executed. He has been vindicated through the resurrection from the dead. He has power to heal this lame man. And finally, in verse 12, salvation is only through Jesus. That's what made them bold. That the king is the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of the Christ. He is the Messiah. And that there's no way to heaven but through him. That's what made them bold. See, we think that boldness comes by us saying something profound. Like oftentimes we hear good, clean sermons and it teaches the Bible, but because we didn't feel it, because it didn't emotionally hit us, we like, oh, that, that wasn't a good sermon at all. The thing that made them bold is their obedience to proclaim the person and work of Jesus. Again, I say, people do not mind you being benevolent. They do not mind your altruism. They don't mind that you are serving as long as it's disconnected from the biblical Jesus. They do not mind political Jesus, right? God and country. Like, you can bring that Jesus here. They don't even mind the Jesus that fit their social agenda. You can bring that Jesus here. But the Jesus who calls you to change, the Jesus who calls you to submit, the Jesus who's going to transform you from the darkness into light, leave that Jesus out there. I, I, I don't want that Jesus here anymore. And that's what the religious leaders did. Religious leaders heard this Jesus and they told them to do one thing. Shut up. Shut up. Be silent. In fact, when you look at the religious leaders in verse 18, it said they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. In other words... If you are going to be bold for Jesus, there are going to be people to tell you to shut up and dribble. Shut up and make your art. Shut up and make uh, entertainers. Shut up and do this. But do not press your Jesus on us. That's your truth. That's not my truth. The question is why? Why do people want you to be silent? Why do these Jewish authorities want them to be silent? Well, they tell you in verse 17, in order that you may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. The reason why they want you to be silent is because they do not want the gospel to be spread. Let me tell you what that is. That's demonic. That's what Satan does. Satan wants us to be silent on Jesus 
so that it will not spread the image of God and the truth of God and the good news of God across the earth. The remedy to this world is not policy change. The remedy to this world is Jesus Christ. And when he is silent, and when you are silent, you are falling short of what God has called you to do to be the hope and the light of this world. A man just got healed. A man just got delivered. And they talking about what you said. And the reason why they're talking about what he said was because of what happened in chapter 3 of verse 16. Write this down. Acts chapter 3, verse 16, it says, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. What healed him was not simply the words of be healed. It was his faith that healed him when he put his faith in Jesus. That's what they're trying to stop. That's what they're trying to silence. And did you notice something? That the people that the apostles are fighting against are religious folks. Those who are protectors of tradition, those who are protecting their bottom line, those who are protecting their world, their reality, their power structures. Those are the people oftentimes that you will have to stand up and be bold towards. Here's the final one that I think is on its way. I think it's future. I don't think it's here yet, but it's a future reality. The final thing is you as the church will experience civil punishment, fines, and imprisonment. Verse 3, it says, and they were arrested, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Here are two things that I think are coming. And the first thing that I think you're already seeing in the world, the first thing is hate speech. Sound doctrine is going to be considered hate speech. When you take the word of God and accurately divide the truth, I'm not talking about your preference. I'm not talking about your tradition. I'm talking about when you extract God's true word and reveal it to a people who do not want it, they're going to call you using hate speech. And the second thing that's coming, which I'm not too, I think we should lose it, but churches are going to lose their tax exemption. Because churches are going to be held responsible for serving everybody despite what they believe. Now, remember, the Bible tells us to love our neighbor. It doesn't tell us to submit to our neighbor. The Bible tells us to love our neighbor, and so we can serve anybody, no matter your belief, your creed, because we know that we are responsible not only for the vertical reality, but also the horizontal reality. But the moment 
But the church is dictated to do something that goes against the command of Scripture, we're going to lose something. So the question is, what is at risk? Public confrontation, interrogation, silencing of the church, and civil punishment. So now the question is why? Why should we boldly proclaim Jesus? And I have one simple principle. It saves lives. It saves lives. Acts chapter 4, verse 4 says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000 people. Notice something. No matter how powerful the Jewish authorities were, it did not stop these people from believing and putting their faith in Jesus. I don't care how powerful a person is. I don't care how powerful a group is. I don't care how powerful a government is. When we glorify Jesus, the gospel of Christ will spread. The reason why we should boldly proclaim Jesus is because it saves lives. In fact, when a person puts their trust in Jesus, let me read what the scriptures say. In John chapter 5, verse 24, it says, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Anyone who puts their trust in Christ has life, eternal life, not eternal damnation, which is hell. He said he passes over that because of his faith in Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ. First Peter chapter two, verse nine says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Last verse, John chapter 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus says, do you believe this? And that's the problem. Every scripture that I just said, most if not all Christians know that. The issue is not whether you know it. The issue is whether you believe it. Do you believe that if a person does not put their faith in Jesus, that they would be eternally separated from Christ? That a person who doesn't put their faith in Jesus, they are dead in their trespasses and sins. That a person who does not put their trust in Jesus, they are not living up to the high expectation of what it means to be created by the creator. The problem is not whether we know these scriptures. The problem is, do we believe them? Do we have a heart for the harvest or the loss? 
Do we have an urgency for those who are hellbound? Do we have a desire to add to the family of God? Because if we do, then we boldly proclaim Jesus for the sake of lives. I think about people in my family who do not know Christ. And at any given moment, they can die. And I have to confess that how often have I spent trying to share the gospel with them? It is not your responsibility to save people. It is your responsibility to be obedient when the Spirit tells you to proclaim the gospel to them. So I've made it my mission uh, recently to find ways to share the gospel with my family. To, to, To find ways to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. To pray to the Holy Spirit and to organize my thoughts or to give me the boldness that I need to tell uh, one of my family members who has never allowed me to share the gospel with them. I haven't been preaching since I was 19. And this person who is closest to me has only heard me preach once. I've sent tapes. I told them I'm on a website. I told them I got a church, like everything have never listened to me proclaim Jesus. And I still got to find ways. So I know all of you are saying, Pastor, I got the what, I got the why, so now tell me the how. How do we boldly proclaim Jesus when we are uncomfortable? And there are three ways that I think. I think we boldly proclaim Jesus by proclaiming by the authority of the Spirit, not the acceptance of man. We fear God more than we fear man, and we pray for boldness, not relief. All right? Let's start with the first one. We proclaim by the authority of the Spirit, not the acceptance of man. Remember in verse 7, when the Jewish authorities asked them, by what authority or by what name did you do this? Do you know what they were asking them? Who has given you the authority to do or to say these things? Right? They like, who are you? Because I know I didn't give you the authority. Who on earth is giving you authority? And let me say this. You do not have to wait on the authority of man to proclaim the righteousness of Jesus. In fact, It was Peter who boldly proclaimed Jesus of Nazareth, and he was the one who answered the question. Now, mind you, Peter is also the one who denied Jesus. What changed? The text says he was filled with the Spirit. What has changed in you? The Spirit has taken a permanent resident in you. You can boldly proclaim Jesus without being hitched to the authority or the acceptance of man. In fact, I know a couple of people who do this. I know a doctor 
who has a prayer room in their office. I know a doctor who who sits with their staff and they have discussions that oftentimes point to a risen Savior. I know a teacher. <laughs> I can tell you, Scott. I know a teacher who's like, look, these kids go get Jesus. Now, they know that they can't initiate the conversation, but man, they find ways to encourage the conversation so that the kids are coming to them and saying, can you tell me more? I'm not talking about lawlessness. I'm talking about listening to the spirit to be obedient and proclaim Jesus. And I've learned there's been a lot of students who have put their faith in Christ. In fact, when I was a probation officer in Ohio, they told me not to talk about Jesus. I was like, okay. So when the kids would come into my van, I would tell them I believe in three things. I believe in repentance. I believe in uh, um, the resurrection. And I believe in redemption. And those were my three R's. And they would come into my van. They'd be like, uh, I would tell them, hey, repentance, redemption, Resurrection. And then one day, one of the students asked me, what? What is wrong with you? Man, I want to say what he said to me. I'm trying to keep it rated E. Uh, Put it like this. I am a black man. He was a black young boy. And I'm up here talking about this Jesus. And he looked at me and was like, you ain't black. But he didn't say that. He was like, what kind of black man are you? <laughs> what kind of black man are you? And so I was like, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. <laughs> and he was one of the young men when I left uh, in Tamara and I <laughs> relocated to um, um, Texas. He was one of the young men that went to church with me. He was one of the young men that read the Bible with me. He was actually one of the young men who simply said to me, You saved my life. If you had not told me about this Jesus, I wouldn't know. In fact, he told me that his grandmother was uh, a Jehovah Witness. And he would go back and tell her what I was teaching him in the scripture. And then she referred to me as a demon. She said, you're a demon. He's a demon. And so he was sitting in the back seat. He said, my grandma would call you a demon, but I think you're an angel, bro. <laughs> I went from you're not black to now I'm an angel. So I'm a black angel now. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how all that works out. All right. But within the context of authority, I was able to proclaim Jesus. Secondly, fear God more than you fear man. Remember, it says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or to listen to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. I think this is a cold line. Because essentially what the apostles are saying, you debate whether it's right for us to obey you or to obey God. But as for me and my house... We will proclaim Jesus. In other words, to fear God 
more than you fear man suggests that you are not allowing the governing authorities to dictate what God has said, right? To fear God more than you fear man suggests that you are not allowing the governing authorities to dictate what Jesus has said. In fact, I know some of you are asking, yes, Christians are called to submit to governing authorities according to Romans chapter 13, verse one. Yes, we are called to be model citizens, but when the governing authorities commands conflict with a clear command of God, then our allegiance is to our king, not our country. Our allegiance is to our creator, not his creation. We are called to fear man and um, fear God more than we fear man. And some of you are asking, how do, how do I do this, Pastor? Like, how, how do I know how to filter this reality? And I'll give you two things that I've been doing for years that I learned from my pastor. I've been doing it for years. I asked two questions. What does God say according to the scripture? Right? When you're trying to filter this reality of fearing God more than you fear man, ask the question, what does God say according to the scripture? And then the second question you ask is, what does God tell me to do about what he said? Wisdom and obedience. Knowledge and application. What does God say? Does this fit in the framework of his command? And what has he told me to do? Simple, right? Practice it. Here's the last one. Pray for boldness not relief. The prayer of these apostles in verses 29 through 31 simply said this, and now Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hands to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Notice what they asked for. They didn't ask for relief. They asked that the spirit would give them the boldness to be obedient. They asked them that the spirit of God would fill them and to put them in the right position with the right words, with the right posture. They did not pray for relief. They prayed for boldness. Are you praying to God for boldness? Or are you just praying that God would get you out of this certain season of life? Are you saying to yourself, man, if I could just have this, then I can give all of my time to Jesus. That's not how Christ works. Christ don't work that you give out of the abundance of your resources. Christ works that you give out of the abundance of your sacrifices. How can Jesus trust you with more when you're not faithful over the little? Like, man, as soon as I get more, I'm, I'm going to commit more to the church. That's not how Christ works. 
Because if he gave you more, you wouldn't have the tools to handle the weight and responsibility that he has given you. So he's preparing you faith by faith, step by step, movement by movement. Here's what will happen when you pray for boldness, not relief. When you and I pray for boldness and not relief, you will commit yourself to the will of God. Not your will, but his will. Not what you want, but what he want. When you and I pray for boldness and not relief, we position ourselves to experience his miraculous works. See, the reason why we're not seeing these miracles is because we want everything to line up before they happen. But Jesus has said, no, pray for boldness, although you can't see clearly what's going on. Just be obedient when the Spirit of God leads you there. And lastly, when you pray for boldness and not relief, you are trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do you do this? How do you proclaim Jesus with boldness when you're uncomfortable? It literally starts with you submitting to the authority of the spirit. It literally starts with you praying for boldness. It literally starts with you fearing God and revering him more. Thank you again for listening to Disciple City Church Podcast. Until we meet again, Shalom.